A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, a mother and her two sons are charged with tampering with evidence in the stabbing death of her husband, their father. But who killed the dad and why remains a mystery because no one has been charged with his murder. So what does tampering with evidence. What do these charges mean, especially since the dad's body was found in a canal two years ago? He had been stabbed to death, say police, and his body was placed in the water, according to them. But first, a man gets revenge during a wedding ceremony by shooting the bride and the pastor right after the I do's. But the motivation has nothing to do with the jilted lover. Instead, the shooter was upset because the groom's son had killed his stepfather. The shooter was upset that the church was holding a wedding on the same day of his stepdad's funeral. The shooter was consumed by telling his side of the story, so much so that he ended up representing himself in court. Wait until you hear him questioning the bride about how she could possibly get married on the same day that they were burying his father. It is like no other case that we have covered on this podcast. We're recording this on Wednesday, November 8th of 2023. Our guest today is Rachel Fassay, an attorney specializing in white collar criminal defense, government investigations, and other complex litigation. Rachel is also a legal analyst for several news outlets. And Rachel's been on the podcast before, and we're so happy to have you back. Rachel, how are you? I'm great. I'm very happy to be back. And thank you for having me. We have such interesting things to talk about today. Oh, we do. And, you know, the reason I am fascinated and the reason I do the things I do, because it's so revealing about human nature and how people react to to problems in their lives or things that are bothering them. That's how I look at crime. And our first case about this wedding is completely about how someone reacts when something happens to them and not in the predictable way. Okay, Uh, certainly not problem solving here, but usually when you think of the bride and others being shot at a wedding during the ceremony, you think, oh, some, you know, there's an ex-lover, there's something like that. Absolutely not, has nothing to do with it. That's why this is so fascinating. It absolutely plays on every part of human emotion, particularly grief in this case, which is not something you think about when you think of murder and impulsive acts. But I think grief had a lot to do with the motivation for this killing. Absolutely. I so agree with you. I I think so. You know, because the shooter, the shooter was clearly grieving the loss of his stepfather, whom he loved. And because he ended up representing himself, you heard so much about his father and how he felt about him during this trial. It's it's so confusing. You know, everything about this case is outrageous. The case is outrageous, the crime, and the trial. It's not like it ever, you know, <laughs> ever gets a little more structured in this entire thing. It does not. It becomes that much more insane as you delve into this. Um, 
The other thing is this was covered. This is a trial that was covered by the local news media in New Hampshire. And I am stunned that there are only a few hundred views for the trial videos. And usually I'm obsessed by them. And I know so many of you are. I don't understand how this one has flown under the radar. And we really wanted to focus on it because it has elements um, that are different, that are different than some of the other cases that we've we've looked at. I believe it's one of the most fascinating cases we've covered. I think once people understand the relationship between the parties, which is slightly difficult to get to in this case, because it's a small town and people are related and uh, events are happening simultaneously on the same day, uh, which you will describe shortly. But I think once people understand the intricacies of this case, the viewer hit on the video will likely skyrocket. It is fascinating. It is fascinating to watch this man cross-examine the bride. I mean, at this, I mean, because think about it. It's it, there's so much going on here. Is it potential re-victimization of the victims as they are being questioned about their experience and what happened to them by the very man who actually shot him, shot them? Okay, so that's that's one part of it. Can you imagine? And it's not like. It's hard enough in a trial when the person accused is sitting behind a desk. <laughs> this, he gets to move around. <laughs> Everyone's emotions are high. Uh, the shooter's emotion, who is also the lawyer and also the defendant. And then he is questioning the people that were shot, the victims. Uh, it, it, and they're having emotions. Uh, th th this is just basically a powder keg. Yes, that's a great description. So this case is out of Pelham, New Hampshire. Okay, so the obvious headline, right, would be, oh, you know, um, that a bride and the wedding party shot during the I do's. That's dramatic enough. But really, the case, the story, the motivation is all layered behind all of that. That, that headline is almost like, that's nothing compared to what appears to have been going on in this small town. This was all revenge. It was revenge specifically against the groom, the man who was getting married. Because the man who was getting married, the groom, you need to understand this, his son, his son had shot and killed the wedding shooter's stepdad 12 days earlier. So I want to say that again, the shooter was mad. The wedding shooter, the triggerman on the wedding day was upset because his stepdad had been killed by the groom's son. And his stepdad was a pastor at this very church where the wedding was held. So he was very angry at the pastor who was presiding over the wedding. He was very angry at everyone in the church about what was going on and why his dad, who was also a pastor there, was not being held um, with the same regard as the, as the family getting married. Like I will say, just for pure scheduling, if you're in a small town and everyone involved in both the funeral and the wedding is somehow connected, maybe don't hold those on the same day, okay? It's just not a good idea. What you have here is betrayal. He felt betrayed, but not in the classic way that you would feel at a wedding and where you would have a, an act at a wedding. But the shooter was 
feeling betrayed by the pastor and probably by the groom. But the betrayal inside of that church, just the very location of the shooting um, is incredibly significant. Yes, yes, it is. So the amazing thing is that everything that happened leading up to that shooting at the wedding, it really, the case and the story doesn't end there because this this stepson, the shooter, then represents himself during the trial. And he does this, he does this because he has assaulted his, his public defender, the, the, the person assigned to defend him in this attempted murder case. He ends up assaulting in jail during a visit. So the shooter, right? The wedding shooter here. He's all, he's entered into a plea deal. He's going to be spending time in prison for assaulting his attorney. Now, who in the world is going to want to represent this man? This is a small town. He's just beaten up his attorney. He's certainly, he's gone in and he's shot up a wedding. The man is angry. He, of course, thinks he's justified, but he's angry. He's angry. So, it almost makes sense for him to have defended himself. That's how he ends up defending himself. I've, again, I've never, if this were in a movie, I wouldn't believe it because it's it's a ridiculous plot line. I beat up my attorney, so now I'm gonna represent myself. Right, I, I, I it, it makes sense in this kind of setting that he did represent himself. And in somebody who's gonna take the law in his own hands, as he did to seek revenge in the way that he did. He's got a particular personality that believes he can handle things, as it were. Um, So it is a crazy plot line, but how we get there, if you work it through logically, can make some sense. It can. So he defends himself. He's ultimately convicted. No big surprise there. However, the jury finds him not guilty of attempted murder of the bride. So clearly he did something right. (laughs) She was shot in the arm. She was shot in the arm. The bride was shot in the arm. And listen, the bride and the groom are not spring chickens here. They're both in their 60s. So it's just the whole thing is fascinating. Okay, so... There are so many people involved here and so many names. Now we're going to get to the names. I I wanted you to have the broad picture here of this complicated case. The convicted wedding shooter is 41-year-old Dale Holloway. Okay? Now, according to the testimony, his own, because, well, he didn't take the stand. So I have to be careful how I say that. He didn't take the stand. But in his questioning, some of his questions were statements right? And his opening and closing statements revealed a lot about what he thought and what he believed happened. So it's almost like a testimony because he's the one speaking. (laughs) It's really hard to decipher for the jury in this kind of case where, where defendants represent themselves. They're only seeing one person and to fictionalize the defendant from the lawyer becomes very difficult for the jury because of the way our brains work. It is still one person. So he is testifying, but he's not doing so under the penalty of perjury when he's making an opening and closing statement. So he didn't have to be subject to cross exam, but he still got his 
truth and his story across, which in some ways might have been more effective than if a lawyer had done it for him. So because he wasn't going to testify likely in any event, because, you know, he did it. Every People saw it. There were witnesses. There's not really a question as to who the shooter was, but he was able to tell his story uh, about why he did it without making the admissions one would have to make on the stand. So is he is he a genius? <laughs> well, I think <clears throat> I think he's a clever one. I think he's a clever one. And I just thought about something. When we see a defendant, even though presumed innocent, many people will think, what a monster, right? They will think, what monster could do this? And what I think what Dale did by speaking and having so many roles and and telling his story is that he humanized the person that could have been seen as a monster and told his story. The only witness he called was his mother. And his mother told the story of how tragic his life was. And so you got to see so much more about the accused here. Look, what he did was absolutely wrong. You know, he has impulse control. He has violent tendencies. There's no question about it. But what we saw here, because of the bizarre nature of the trial and the case, it, is we saw so much of a damaged human being and how he got there. And we don't always get a chance to see that in a trial. But because he was both defendant and attorney, at the same time, we we got a glimpse into it. So his mother testified. His mother is Patricia Garcia. Um, and she said that Dale's biological father was terribly abusive, so abusive that the man left scars on Dale's head. And if you look at Dale, um, Dale has his whole head right skull area is all tattooed and he has a shaved head for those of you who are listening so he's got a lot of lot of tattoos on his head and he even talks about it um as he is in the role of his attorney talking about his tattooed head and that he doesn't hide it but his mother says those tattoos really are there to cover up the scars left by his biological father so when his mother married his stepdad luis garcia this man had so much love and care for Dale and treated Dale so well that the mother says, you know, this man meant everything to Dale. Think about it. If you are that broken child who's been abused and all of a sudden a really good man comes into your life and is a true dad to you, even though he didn't father you in, in that biological way, to have this man taken from you was more than Dale could handle. This was his rock. This was his rock. I mean, in his opening statements, Dale is going on about how he learned to salsa dance. I mean, you know, he's, he's recounting all these moments of his life that were important to him through this process, process which a courtroom can be very sterile and you don't get to always tell your story. Again, Rachel, the most unusual, bizarre trial ever. 
It's bizarre. And you're doing such an amazing job of humanizing the defendant and what he was conveying to the jury. There was no chance at any point in this that he probably wasn't going to be convicted of something. But what came across to the jury likely is the same thing that came that you're describing, which is him humanizing himself and the feelings that he had for his stepfather, why he had those feelings, perhaps why he had impulse control and violent tendencies and the terrible upbringing he had until this man came into his life, which gives the jury a reserve to when they go back to deliberate what he should be convicted of and what should be the result. Um, because we, we all know revenge shooting or murder or attempted murder in this country is absolutely not allowed. There's no, it's not mitigating unless there's some sort of self-defense aspect to it, but it did allow the jury to go back and really ponder what what was done and who it was directed at, which we will get to, which is why likely he wasn't convicted of attempted murder of the bride. And think about it. The revenge here is not against the shooter. The revenge is against the shooter's father. It's like a personal, it's like you took my dad I'm taking your dad. That's how I view this. And and to and to do it at a wedding. But again, the church is central here because his stepfather Luis Garcia, who was 63 years old when he was killed, was a pastor at the New England Pentecostal Ministries Church. Okay, the same place where the wedding took place. Everything leads back to this to this church. So 12 days before the wedding, 12 days, October 1st of 2019, Pastor Luis Garcia is shot dead. He's shot in the back of the head by Brandon Castiglione, who's 28 years old. Brandon, according to his family, and remember his father is the groom, Brandon reportedly suffered from mental illness and Brandon's father noted that Brandon and Luis Garcia had argued about their interpretations of scripture. So when Dale, the wedding shooter here, who's acting as his attorney, um, is making his statements, he keeps going on and on about um, God, Christ, the devil, and, and arguing things and how somehow his father's, his stepfather's teachings, you know, somehow were misinterpreted. Anyway, it can, it's kind of confusing. I can't completely understand his point here, but it's central. So it's scripture and the interpretation of the Bible. And it's also truly this, like, you killed my father, I will kill your father. So those, those are, I mean, I think the two themes here that we see over and over again. Okay, now at the time of the wedding shooting, Brandon, the younger Castiglione, the groom's son, hadn't gone through the process yet, right? Had been arrested, but had not gone through the justice system. So it, it seems to me, do you think, Rachel, that Dale, our wedding shooter, had taken upon himself to be justice here? I do. Take on? 
I do. I think that is part of the theme is justice. Father for a father. Um, he didn't he wasn't waiting for the justice system to work uh, for the son, for the actual shooter to go through the process of trial and conviction. He's not waiting for that. He's waiting for justice inside of the church where his stepfather uh, was and was a pastor, and he's doing it inside of that church, very monumental, very important to the case, and he's taking the father. So I think this is him taking the role of justice, just as he did as the lawyer. I think justice and fairness is very essential to uh, his way and mode of thinking, and that's what drove the crime and, and really drove the defense. I agree with you, Rachel. I believe that justice is central to everything that Dale believes based on what he has said and his actions here. So I want to make it clear that the son, the groom's son, Brandon, who killed the wedding shooter's stepdad, was convicted of second-degree murder, and he got a sentence of 42 years, and he is in prison right now. But at the time of the wedding shooting, this hadn't moved along in the process yet. So there's there's no dispute uh, here is who shot who in this whole thing. So let's now get to the day of the wedding. Okay, H here we go. The man getting married on that day is Mark Castiglione, 60 years old. He is the father of Brandon who just shot the wedding shooter's stepdad, the passer. Okay, so he's getting married. And clearly the wedding shooter didn't think that this man should be able to enjoy his wedding when he is himself grieving his, his stepfather's passing and is about to have a funeral that day. So now let's get to October 12th. This is the day of the wedding. Shortly after the couple says, I do, shots ring out. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. The timing of everything is unbelievable. Miraculously, no one was killed here. No one was killed. And I don't know how that's possible, but thank God no one was killed. The bishop who was overseeing the wedding, Stanley Choate, suffered a gunshot wound to the chest. He was taken to a hospital in Boston, and he was in serious condition. It was a very serious injury. Now, the bride here, who's 60 years old, Claire McMullen, she was shot in the arm. And then the actual groom, who we presume was the target, Mark, the man whose son had killed the wedding shooter's stepdad, he got injured when he was, he tackled the wedding shooter, Dale, and he was hit in the head with a part of the gun. And so that's how he was injured, meaning the groom. And then the other wedding goers tackled Dale and held Dale until the police could get there. So, you know, Dale is now in custody. And I, I just want to make clear again that he gets assigned an attorney for the attempted murder at the wedding shooting. And, that, and he gets all upset with his attorney, beats him up, harms him terribly. I mean, the attorney who got beat up by Dale, Dale's attorney, suffered a broken nose, a brain hemorrhage, along with multiple contusions. And so Dale agreed to a plea deal, and he is currently serving time in prison, seven and a half to 15 years 
for that atrocity. Okay, now let's get to the trial for the shooting at the wedding. Okay, now we have Dale representing himself. And um, I don't think he does a horrible job here, Rachel. <laughs> Different, but I don't think horrible. I think he didn't do a horrible job either. And it's always a bad idea to represent yourself. Yes. Always. Like, I'm just going to blanketly say that. But in this case, where you have so many witnesses, and he's not left with a lot of defenses. Um, and so he really can't take the stand. And he can't take the stand because if he gets on the stand, he has to say he did it and because he did it. I mean, or, or he's lying. So he can't do that. He can't get on the stand and actually defend himself because no one's going to care why he did it. Once he admits he did it on the stand. However, in the, in the posture that he did this with the opening and the closing, he was able to get in, evidence, even though the jury isn't really allowed to consider it as evidence, what his arguments are. But as we touched on earlier, he's really able to get the jury to understand a bit more about who he is. And, and the background, right? The background of this background. case. That's right. His background, and it's a little snaky because he's not subject to cross exam, because under cross, he probably would have fallen apart. He did it. Did you know, were you under harm? What actually happened? Like you, th there's a different way that he would have to handle himself on cross and either look belligerent or probably a little crazy. Um, but he's not going to be as sympathetic on cross when when he's being questioned about a very serious crime at two people's presumably their happiest day or one of the happiest days in their lives. And he's doing it at that moment to, you know, to really have an effect. So mm -hmm. the way he did it was was clever. He said in his opening statements that he what he did was in defense of himself, that he felt that the church and members of the church were now out to get him and his family and that he was feeling threatened. Well, um, you weren't invited to <laughs> to the wedding. And nobody said anything to you at the wedding. So you interjected yourself at the wedding. You know, you, you were the wedding crasher here. Um, that was obviously very weak. But that's his point of view, where he's coming from, his, his reference. And um, it's so weird the way he kept referring to, to himself in the third person as the shooter as he's questioning the, the witnesses who are the victims here, especially the victims. It's... It is, oh my gosh. And just toss in like small town, New Hampshire. It's like Fargo. It was <laughs> watching the trial is like an episode of, of Fargo. Okay, so it's time to listen to this trial. For those of you listening, uh, I just want you to understand what we're seeing on screen is the bride sitting in the witness stand and she's being questioned by the man who shot her in the arm, okay? You know what? Let's just play the clip and we'll talk about it. And when did you learn that the funeral service was gonna be on that day? 
I can't recall for sure. Did you plan the wedding to merge with, did you yourself plan the wedding to merge with the funeral? No. No. So did you plan on attending the funeral service for Minister Garcia? No, I had planned on going to my reception. Did you, did you ever see a gun pointed at you? Not that I can recall. Okay. Um, when you got shot, did you think you were shot on purpose? Like, was the bullet... I didn't realize I had been shot <clears throat> until after it had happened. So... It wasn't... I didn't know immediately I had been shot. Uh, is that the craziest line of questioning you've ever heard? Were you planning on attending... <laughs> My stepfather's funeral? No, I was going to my wedding reception. Oh. It's crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy. And she probably had her wedding planned forever. It was probably the funeral that was. Yes. When yes. you think about it. Yes, you know? yes. Which, of course, her stepson was responsible for. So, you know, all fingers point to the stepson. But I have, it's his line of questioning, you know. <laughs> did you plan your funeral? And no, did you plan your wedding to, to ruin my father's funeral is basically what he was saying. Right. Like, this is your fault. Are you shoving this in my face? Are you shoving right. this in my face? That, so, that, so that moment is incredible. But I'll have to say something. I also watched the prosecution. Listen, our wedding shooter here, Dale, didn't do a horrible job of defending himself. But let me just say that the prosecution didn't do an exemplary job on their end, okay? So that kind of brings everything to the middle because as as the prosecutor is questioning the bride, I can't even believe I'm going to say this. This is the question. Now, remember, she was shot in the arm. And his question was this. Did you have that hole in your arm before the wedding? She answers, no. <laughs> Did you have a hole in your arm before the wedding? Who asked this kind of question during an attempted murder trial? Come with the gunshot wound? <laughs> I am not making this up. I am not making this up. This that is, this is why I don't understand why this the trial videos don't have more views. It's it's like nothing I have ever seen in my life. Okay, so clearly, you know, Dale may not have been up to par, but let me just say on the prosecution side. <laughs> did you have that hole in your arm before the wedding? That is no, an amazing question. And it straight is, to the it? point. <laughs> there are many ways of saying that you got shot. Can you see here why the jury did not find the man guilty of shooting the bride, even though he shot the bride? It doesn't make any sense. One of the things that's very confusing here is, okay, the jury found that Dale was not guilty of attempted murder of the bride, yet she was clearly shot in the arm. He's the one who shot her. I don't understand. Can you can you explain to us does motivation or intent play into this? It does. And depending on how it was charged, it sounds like to me it was charged that he was intentionally trying to murder the bride. That would be the charge. Intentional murder, which is generally what we think of as first degree murder, sometimes second degree murder, but it, it, it is intent and it is not reckless. So if it had been charged as a reckless murder, I believe that 
there would have been um, an attempt finding against the bride because certainly shooting a gun in any crowded area is reckless, period, end of story. Anybody you hit in a reckless, reckless charged uh, attempt um, when you're firing a gun at, at swaths of people, that I would think the jury would convict him of. So I think what the jury found was the bride was not the target. And that's likely true, to be honest. That's likely true as well. Clearly, he was angry at the pastor, because remember, the pastor's part of this. Well, not the pastor, but the bishop. He was the pastor there for the wedding ceremony, but he's the bishop. So Dale, the wedding shooter, obviously is very upset with the hierarchy of this church that his stepfather worked at. And so something was central there. And clearly, clearly wasn't happy with the groom the shooter's father, the, you know, so it, it, it is interesting. Again, Dale didn't do that bad of a job. Right. <laughs> if he, he managed to get off on that one. Yeah. So she was hit. She was hit without question. She was hit with a gun. In the closing arguments, the prosecutors emphasized that Dale had done everything that he could to murder two people that day. You know, that he set out there to kill them. And honestly, by the grace of God, it's amazing that no one was murdered that day. Dale, in his closing, said, you know what? I am not guilty of these charges. He kept telling the jury over and over again that the burden was on the prosecution, that he's presumed innocent. And so he doesn't have to prove his innocence. They have to prove his guilt. I'm like, Dale at times really has his wits about him here. (laughs) And then that's when he went on and on. I think where he loses things is when he goes off into this tangent of serpents and snakes and how the um, Castiglione family and how bad they are. That's when he rambles and, you know, he loses people and he seems kind of kooky there. So Tuesday of this week, November 7th, the jury found Dale guilty of multiple counts of assault and possession of a firearm as a felon, along with attempted murder in the shooting of the wedding's bishop, Stanley Choate. However, again, when he came to the bride, he was not guilty of attempted murder there. Now this moves into the second phase. This should be, I don't know how Dale defends himself in this one. So in the second phase, they have to determine, the judge has to determine Dale's state of mind because Dale has said that he is not guilty by reason of insanity. So I guess now they have to figure out his mental competency. But frankly, defending yourself during an attempted murder trial it's, he wasn't delusional. He may have sounded a little nutty on a lot of things. And there's he's certainly got issues and problems. There's no question about it. But I don't think this guy's insane. I don't think so either. Because he'd have to show he didn't know the difference between right and wrong. And that's generally the insanity defense standard. That um, he believed what he was doing was right. And he didn't know that it was illegal to bring in a gun. Uh, and he didn't know, you know, he, he, his brain would not allow him to decipher that difference. And by defending himself, um, through time, he has likely shown, at least at the time of the trial, that he couldn't decipher the difference between right and wrong. Now, he can argue he was insane then, but not insane now. But it, it just becomes a, a 
again, a mixed pot for the judge to consider and whether, you know, whether he can make that showing. And my guess is he's done enough now and actually acted fairly in a, in a clever ways in some, in some manner throughout this trial that will allow um, the decision to be made that he was not insane. And so that, that would not be a complete defense as to this crime. I don't think he stands a chance on this one. And in fact, when he was cross-examining the bishop, right, the man that he was convicted of, it, of trying to kill, who he has a lot of animosity toward, in this questioning and referring to himself, the shooter in the third person, he said to the bishop, the bishop is on the stand. This is the man who was injured, right? He was in serious condition, had to be taken to Boston. He said, did the shooter kill you? <laughs> And the bishop responded, apparently not. <laughs> so I I think I think Dale has enough of his wits about him <laughs> that he's by reason of insanity, no. No, I don't it's think that's a high gonna... standard. It's really hard to meet that burden. Um, people try, but it is it is a very unusual to actually be found guilty by reason of insanity. And I think, you know, 11 days after a shooting, he was there for justice. Um, that in and of itself does show that he likely knows the difference between right and wrong. He had a motive. He walked in with a motive. He was revenging, um, avenging the death of his stepfather. He was doing a like for like uh, type of attempted murder, and he was doing it in the play in a, in a significant place. So it it would be difficult for him to argue that he was insane at that time. Do you think that there's any chance? that if an attorney should step in later after, I mean, he's already been convicted. Look, he's doing prison time, serious prison time. That is no question here. Plus, he's also doing at least 7 to 15 for attacking his attorney. Do you think that if an attorney should approach him after this, you know, one wearing like body armor, you know, <laughs> that it's not going to talk to him <laughs> virtually, not in the same room, do you think that there is the potential for an appeal here that he didn't get a fair trial because he represented himself? Is that even possible here? It, it is possible, but it, in this case, it sounds like it's likely would not be appealable. It sounds like he made a knowing choice to represent himself. He refused other counsel. I'm sure he was actually offered other public defenders and he refused them. And when you're taking on that burden of representing yourself, you are taking on all of the issues with representing yourself. So the judge found him competent or you know, this wouldn't have gone on or um, so there is a bit of a finding just in the instance where they're finding that he was competent to represent himself. Um, he made a choice not to testify. He did all the things that one does in a criminal trial, um, even, you know, whether represented or not. So it would now be hard for him to argue that he unknowingly went into this trial, particularly since he overcame one of the charges. So the, the appealability based on his own actions throughout the trial seems incredibly unlikely. What a fascinating case in trial. 
calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our second case is out of Florida, where a man's wife and sons have been arrested for his mysterious death during a family vacation in Suwannee, Florida. Now, what's interesting about this case is that the charges against the wife and the two adult sons, these charges are coming nearly two years after the man was found murdered. But these charges are not homicide charges. They are charges of tampering with evidence. What do you make of that, Rachel? What it's it's almost like you're backing into the murder. I agree with you. I think they are backing into the murder. And at this point, they wanted to arrest these individuals and put some pressure on them, but they only had probable cause for tampering with evidence. So that gave them the ability to arrest and in some ways I I think that to the prosecutors will kick off the case. Um, But I would not be surprised if very shortly we see new charges, Um, but it it is backing into what actually happened. I I fully agree with you. The victim here is 52-year-old David Rainey. The accused, the, the three accused of tampering with evidence connected with this death are his wife, Cindy Rainey, who's 49, and their two sons, 21-year-old Bailey and 19-year-old Jack. David and Cindy had been married for 21 years. David worked as a welder and a mechanic, and it took him all over the country. So he did well for himself. Now, prior to his death, the family was living in Palm Coast, and they were vacationing in Suwannee, Florida. They rented a home with a friend of theirs, Jeffrey Sawyer. So it was the family and Jeffrey Sawyer. We don't really know much more because it sounds like in addition to the dead man and three members of his family, there's one other person there. That's right. But nobody's talking about him. And so who knows? Could be a potential witness. Who knows? There's this not- investigation is ongoing. I mean, they obviously don't have it together fully yet since they just did an arrest only based on tampering with evidence. So there's a lot that we don't know going on in the background right now. Um, But the Suwannee River is also not a big town where these folks are. So I don't know that there's a lot of other witnesses around this area. All very bizarre. So Cindy, the wife, reports David missing on the morning of July 25th of 2021. According to authorities, she told deputies that she and her husband had gotten into an argument the night before. That would have been July 24th. Cindy claimed that David was very angry and that he left the house without his glasses, cell phone, and wallet behind. So what does that indicate to you, Rachel? That's a hard sell in this day and age. If you're angry... And, uh, you know, he didn't return home that that night. Um, You generally manage to take something that you need. 
And a, a wallet is pretty essential to most men. Um, that contains the ability to buy food, for instance. So that to me is a bit, her story is a bit of a hard sell right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is possible if he walked out in a huff and was just going to go for a walk, you don't need anything. If you're just going around the block, I get it. You don't need anything. However, if you're going a lot farther than that, you probably do. So the question is, did he just go for a quick little walk just to cool off? And did something happen to him while he was on this walk? Is that when he was murdered? Because they say that it's homicide. Police say it's homicide. So what happened to him? And then what did they allegedly tamper with? Police have not said that part either. So she, she reports the husband missing. And later that night, didn't take him long to find David because David didn't get far. He was in the canal in the backyard of the house that they were renting. So again, not that hard to find. Didn't go very far. And police said that he was suffering from multiple stab wounds. And it was clearly homicide, according to the medical examiner. Now, here's the other thing that's a little interesting. While police found the body the same day, as Cindy called police, Deputies did not announce the identification of the body until six months later. They made a formal announcement in December of 2021. Uh, it is very difficult to understand what is going on right there, just on that. I think there could be some um, issues with the prosecutor's office, with the detectives assigned to the case, there could be some general competence issues as it relates to this investigation. Um, because I don't see a reason why they would withhold the name when they know that person is missing and they know from where he is missing. And the authorities have said very clearly that he, his body, his body was placed in the water. It's not like he tumbled over, fell, and drowned. That's that's not what they've said. So uh, we know it's a homicide. Now, I don't know what value anyone puts into this, but we're just adding it. After David's death, a GoFundMe account was organized by the two sons, Bailey and Jack. They were asking for donations to be made for the son's future in lieu of sending flowers to the funeral and the fact that their father, the you know provider, was now dead. And the campaign raised just over $500. Now fast forward and the beneficiaries of the GoFundMe case have been charged with tampering with evidence. Innocent until proven guilty, but just another twist in this story of this family. So last month on October 25th, Cindy Bailey and Jack Rainey were all arrested and charged with tampering with evidence. Um, they were all arrested in different parts of Florida because they've moved on. These are adult young men. All three have been detained without bond. What's that about? This is only tampering with evidence. Look, I know that's <laughs> serious people, but what I'm saying is when, you know, uh, people are let out every day for all sorts of heinous crimes, I'm trying to figure out why these three are not being let out. I think because they're just waiting for the murder charges. They fought. And 
Everybody probably knows that. So they find them to be flight risks. So now they've been arrested for this crime that's two years old. They've been arrested on a, a, a much lesser charge than what is likely coming. And they, for some reason, believe that these they're flight risks. Um, and and they have some reason to believe that is my, is my best guess. I'm kind of thinking that the authorities are hoping that this pressure will mm-hmm. get one of them to start talking, if not all of them. I, and I think that is what they're hoping. It's hard. They're a family, but we don't know much about this family other than the father was murdered. So we don't know how close these sons are, how close each of them is with their mother. If there was a fight that night, who was involved? We don't know a lot, but there's so many dynamics at play. So they are keeping these folks close to them right now and working diligently, my guess is, to interrogate them. Police are still asking for tips from the public, so clearly they think there's more information to be had about this case, and they think now with the arrests, it's a prime time for anyone who may know anything to come forward. So the other thing is that the members of David's family, extended family and friends, they're certainly hopeful that now with these arrests, they will finally find out who killed David and why, because that has been a mystery. No one really knows what what happened here, what the motivation could have been. Now, just on the charges of tampering with evidence, since that is all they are charged with, in the state of Florida, conviction for tampering with evidence is a third-degree felony, is subject to penalties of up to five years in prison, plus probation maybe, and a $5,000 fine. So as a first offense, I mean, it's it's very possible if that's all that they have on this family and and that's those are all the charges ever filed and they go to trial, it's very possible that they won't do any prison time. Right. That that's that charge is what I think is just getting them held. So if I don't know if they don't have more, if the authorities actually can't get to murder or at least some sort of recklessness or manslaughter or some sort of bigger crime inside of their investigation. I don't even know that that tampering with evidence charge would stick. Well, that's interesting. Well, we will be watching this. And when there's more information on what happened to David, we will report it here. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going, Anna? Good. Great to see you, Rachel. How are you today? I'm great. Awesome, awesome. So. This week, we have a case of a pretty crappy caper uh, where four suspects were caught. This case comes out of Oxfordshire, England, where four men have been charged after a golden toilet was stolen from Winston Churchill's birthplace. Okay, so yes. Okay, so a little bit of background on this. Uh, This this caper actually happened back in, I believe, back in 2019. All right. Uh, And this comes from Blenheim Palace. I believe that's how you pronounce it, which is, uh, you know, a sprawling English uh, mansion uh, in the countryside, which is where Winston Churchill was born. But 
little, just little note here. He didn't grow up with this golden toilet. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like a family heirloom or something that was there. Um, it was actually, it, it, it's an artwork, which is titled funnily enough, America, uh, which was created by an Italian artist named Maurizio Catalan. And its presence there in uh, in Blenheim Palace was actually part of an of an installation, um, and the toilet was on loan from the Guggenheim, and it just disappeared one night back in September of 2019. Um, and <laughs> this was actually an interactive piece of artwork. I'm just noting noting this because it was part of the story. Um, the museum said the artwork invited viewers to make use of the fixture individually and privately. This is a quote uh, to experience unprecedented intimacy with a work of art. Very interesting conceptual thing you got going on there. Um, but uh, so th this announcement just came on Monday uh, and four men have been charged. They're all around ages 35 to 39. And the, the charges kind of vary here. So I'm just going to break them down a little bit. Our, our, our four, the, the four defendants are going to be James Sheen, Michael Jones, Fred Doe and Bora. I, I believe it's Guchuk. Um, but basically, uh, Sheen is charged with the burglary, burglary, as well as conspiracy to transfer criminal property and transferring criminal property. Jones is charged with burglary, while Doe and Gochuk are both charged with conspiracy to transfer criminal property. So I don't know really different the differences of that. Um, Rachel, maybe you have some insight onto the difference between conspiracy to tra transfer criminal property and transferring criminal property. I'm guessing one is just when you actually complete it or... Right. So the the co-conspirators took some act in the furtherance of the transfer. It might have been the planning act or some act after the fact, whereas the transfer is likely the person driving the truck or whatever transferred this this property around. So conspiracy gets that person into the act. Generally, a conspiracy charge is the same amount of uh, jail time or punishment as would be the main charge, but you can't loop that co-conspirator into the entire thing um, in the way that you can somebody that's actually doing the act. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, so an interesting note here, um, this toilet has still not been recovered. Back in 2021, before these arrests were made, um, uh, authorities said it was very unlikely that it would be recovered. So I, I've I guess I'm having a little bit of a hang up here and <clears throat> how you're going to be able to prove who actually transported the, the property, who conspired if, if you haven't recovered the, the artwork in the case. Text messages, emails, surveillance. Um, that's yeah. that's right. So they have some evidence watching this happen or communicating about this happening. But whatever has happened, that that artwork has likely been sold or yeah, sold or disposed of in some way that it's no longer in their possession. I think these guys were just at a pub one night and they thought, hey, wouldn't it be funny to take that gold toilet seat from, you know, Churchill's old house? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, let's get that. I honestly, I don't think it's all that complicated. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you there. It doesn't feel like Ocean's Eleven to me. Yeah, it feels like something like it, it feels more like a prank almost. And I wonder yes. <laughs> had this artwork been recovered, like sort of, you know, how things might have turned out a little bit differently. But 
These none of the suspects in this case have entered a plea yet. Um, they're expected to appear in court in the magistrate there in November, uh, in, in about three weeks, November 28th. Uh, so we will continue to follow up on this, but obviously got, got a lot of comments on this one. Divine Justice had a question about how this was even possible for four men to execute, saying, if it's solid gold, I doubt they just carry it out on their backs, which Maybe that's how they're getting them on the conspiracy stuff, Rachel, because there had to have been like there had to have been a, a forklift or something involved. There had to have been something involved. I agree with you. It's not a Faberge egg. I mean, they are <laughs> they, they've got a toilet and it sounds like the toilet might have had plumbing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, so yeah, yeah. You actually had to have some foresight or at least a plumber to get the thing out. So um, I, I think it is a, a very odd plan that was likely construed in a pub, but it, it had a, a large planning element to it. Yeah, definitely. One viewer thought that these guys were maybe a little greedy. Two Tone said, "I would have just grabbed the toilet seat." Which, yes. if, if you're if you're after it for a little quick cash grab, I feel like that's really all you need. Yeah, exactly. Some people had some questions about the the ethics of owning a gold toilet. Um, Lizzie L said the the criminal is whoever owned a gold toilet to begin with. Um, to be fair, it, it wasn't really like an ownership thing. It was a piece of art, but uh, I, I still get the sentiment. Allison B said the suspects want to know if they can serve community service in lieu of prison time. Good one in lieu. In lieu. Uh, and then Miss Lonnie uh, had my favorite comment. They said the officers really took their duty seriously on this one. Duty. Uh, we didn't I, I didn't include too many toilet jokes in this one because you know, things things can rapidly get out of hand. Things can rapidly get out of hand. Um, but that is going to do it uh, for this week's comment section. Thank you so much to everybody who left those. You can do that over on our YouTube community page. Uh, you can also reach out to us anytime or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the usual suspects. Uh, but that's going to do it for me this week. And until next week, have a good one. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on today. It's always such a pleasure to have you. Uh, where can people find you, follow you? I know you do a lot of commentary, so people are probably seeing you everywhere. But where can people follow you on social media? I'm on Twitter at RL Fizay. And I um, am often found, I have a collection at my law firm's website, zfzlaw.com. Excellent. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Occasionally I discuss crime. <laughs> Sometimes I just need a break from crime. I really do. Just like everybody else. It's like, oh my gosh, what have people done this week? You can get this episode and all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel and you can also go on our website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. So as we always say, until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast, and don't do crime.